Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting every second and fourth Thursday on KVMR-FM at 6.30 p.m. On today's show, we present the latest news and research on the complicated subject of EVs. Adoption rates are increasing, especially here in California. Businesses and industrial consumers are finally taking delivery of electric semi-trucks. And where are we going to get all of the minerals to power these vehicles? First, let's take a look at what's happening with the pace of EV adoption here in California for both citizens and businesses. Here in California, we've passed the 1.5 million electric vehicle sales mark nearly two years ahead of market predictions, according to the California Energy Commission. For the first quarter of this year in 2023, EVs represented more than 21% of the total California new car market. More than one in five vehicles, new vehicles being bought in California, is now an EV. While we've hit 1.5 million vehicles here in California cumulatively, for comparison, last year, more than 750,000 new EVs were registered in the U.S., That was just 6% of the total national car market, with traditional automakers beginning to grow their market share. Last year, the California Air Resources Board adopted a new Advanced Clean Cars 2 program that set a 100% zero-emission vehicle sales target for 2035, which would deliver more EV options to dealerships across the state. Said Caroline Choi, Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Edison International in Southern California Edison, with 115 different EV makes and models, Californians can choose for more options than ever. The state legislature has approved more than $5 billion in investments for the EV transition. This includes almost $3 billion for EV charging and hydrogen refueling goals, More than $2.5 billion in EV projects, 70% of which will go to priority communities. And the state will also receive just over a third of a billion dollars in federal funding from the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program to install charging stations throughout the state. Said David Hothschild, chair of the California Energy Commission, for the last decade, California has had a goal to reach $1.5 million zero-emission vehicles by the year 2025. Now, this goal has been surpassed nearly two years early, which is an important milestone on the journey to finally bringing clean electric transportation mainstream. Well, in commercial EV news, Sacramento has a Pepsi plant that has gotten the world's first Tesla electric trucks PepsiCo unveiled its new fleet of Tesla semi-electric trucks at its Sacramento bottling plant last month, becoming the first company in the world to acquire the zero-emissions vehicles. 21 vehicles will be used by the Sacramento plant for local deliveries of Pepsi products, while another 15 are being used by PepsiCo's Frito-Lay manufacturing plant in Modesto. While PepsiCo officials hailed their commitment to sustainability at a news conference, much of the initial cost of most of the trucks was actually paid for by state and federal grants. The Sacramento Metropolitan Air Quality Management District actually paid for 18 of the 21 trucks that will be used at the South Sacramento Bottling Plant, 
using $4.5 million in grants, according to its executive director, Alberto Ayala. Ayala said the grants are needed to encourage companies to buy zero-emissions vehicles, given that the cost of a Tesla semi-electric truck is around $250,000. That's twice the cost of a heavily polluting diesel truck. He said, we have a pot of money, and we have to decide where does it make the most sense to spend it. And in our case, Pepsi was willing to work with us. PepsiCo has ordered 100 of the Tesla semis, some of which will be used for long-haul deliveries in California. These Tesla EV trucks have a range of around 400 miles before they need to be charged, according to Erica Edwards, the senior vice president for manufacturing for PepsiCo. She said that they've installed four 750-kilowatt Tesla charging stations at both its Sacramento and Modesto plants. Edwards said the use of this state and federal grants was helping Pepsi move at a more rapid pace to make the transition to non-polluting vehicles. They received a total of $15 million when you add up all of the state and local grants for the vehicles and charging infrastructure for Sacramento and Modesto, plus $40,000 per vehicle from the federal government. She said, we do need to move faster, and if you think about a company like ours that has thousands and thousands of trucks on the road, we do need help. Ultimately, companies in California will be forced to purchase electric trucks from Tesla and other competing manufacturers. The California Air Resources Board is in the middle of a rulemaking process that would require all new trucks purchased to be electric by 2045. Tesla had first announced that the company would manufacture an electric semi-truck in December 2017, five and a half years ago, and PepsiCo was one of the first companies to order the vehicles. However, manufacturing only began last year due to supply chain issues, battery cell issues, and COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns. Well, in talking about the rapid pace of adoption of electric vehicles for the new car market, as well as commercial trucks, one of the questions is, is that electric vehicle actually greener than a gas compact car? And what's fascinating is when research looks at the same make and model vehicle, naturally the EVs are greener than their gas counterparts. So if you look at an economy gas car versus an EV economy car, the EV will always be greener and have significantly less pollution and greenhouse gases and environmental damage associated with it. However, what's been pointed out is with Americans' appetite for larger and larger vehicles, a new study actually compares large EV vehicles to small gas-powered cars and is discovering that the largest of our EVs is actually worse for the environment than the smallest of our gas-powered cars. Meaning that if someone truly indeed needs a larger pickup or SUV in order to have their career or wherever they live, then indeed getting that larger EV is going to be better for the environment. But research is showing that if folks get a much larger EV than they actually need, it could be worse than getting a small car that's more suited to their style and needs. This comes from the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, a nonprofit research organization, and they create a green score for every vehicle. And they say that you may not love the news. 
Their new analysis compares the total life cycle emissions of electric vehicles, hybrids, and gas-powered cars, and the question is, how does your ride stack up? Well, the ACEEE distills a constellation of fuel economy information, pollution, and emissions data into one green score to rule them all for vehicles. This life cycle analysis aims to estimate the vehicle's environmental impacts and costs to human health from, quote, the cradle to the grave of the vehicle, taking into account greenhouse gas emissions and other kinds of pollutants from vehicle manufacturing, as well as from the production and distribution of fuel for the vehicles and from the vehicle tailpipes themselves, as well as counting the end-of-life impacts of disposal and recycling. So, is your big electric pickup truck greener than a gas-powered economy car? Maybe not. Said Peter Heuther, senior transportation research analyst with ACEEE in a press release, not all electric vehicles are created equal. Inefficient and heavy EVs have lower environmental impacts than their same-size gas-fueled versions. But inefficient and heavy EVs will underperform more efficient EVs. And large electric trucks can even underperform efficient gas-powered cars. ACEEE compared three vehicles that are available in both electric and gas-fueled versions, the Mini Cooper hardtop, the Volvo XC40, and the Ford F-150 pickup truck. While the electric versions of each cause significantly less environmental damage than their gasoline-burning counterparts, they discovered that heavier and less efficient vehicles still cause more environmental damage, regardless of power source. For example, the all-electric Ford F-150 Lightning still has a higher environmental impact than the gas-powered Mini Cooper hardtop, despite being powered by batteries and not fossil fuels. Said Heuther, to reduce pollution from automobiles, we need policies that both support more electric vehicles and encourage automakers to improve efficiency among all types of vehicles through a variety of strategies, including reducing vehicle weight. What's interesting as a result of these studies is it continues to show that one of the strongest ways to make transportation greener is to take public transportation. And there are now studies showing associated benefits to a societal connection with people by being on public transportation. Well, another hot topic when it comes to EVs is mining and extracting all of the necessary minerals in order to power EVs. And Canary, uh, and also part of the Covering Climate Now global network of climate uh, media, uh, they had a great article on how can we get enough minerals for EVs without trashing the planet. They say manufacturers, governments, and consumers are lining up behind electric vehicles with U.S. sales of EVs rising 60% last year and at least 17 states considering a California-style ban on gas cars in the years ahead. Scientists say the trend is a key part of driving down the transportation sector's carbon emissions, which could fall by as much as 80% over the next couple of decades under aggressive policies. But while EVs are cleaner than gas cars in the long run, they still carry environmental and human rights baggage, especially associated with mining. 
according to Ian Lange, Director of Mineral and Energy Economics Program at the Colorado School of Mines. He says if you want a lot of EVs, you need to get minerals out of the ground. That's because manufacturing EVs requires about six times more minerals to be extracted than traditional cars. That requirement, coupled with the growth in consumer electronics and renewable energy infrastructure, is predicted to double our global mineral demand over the next two decades, according to the International Energy Agency. So picture that for just a moment. Imagine all of the minerals being mined right now across the entire planet and the impacts of that. And what they're saying is double that. Imagine flipping a switch and we're suddenly doing twice as much mining as we are today. That's what will be required over just the next two decades. And that's only under our current trends, which apparently are not expected to be enough to meet our Paris climate goals. So the International Energy Agency says that actually meeting the Paris Climate Accord goals for decarbonization will require even more, far more minerals, as much as not just doubling today's mineral extraction, but four to six times the present amount. That will mean a lot of mining, with much of it for EV batteries. And at least some of it will happen in the United States, as the Biden administration and many Republicans want more EV materials sourced at home, both to act on climate change and to wrest some control of supply chains from China. Colorado School of Mines uh, Director Ian Lange said he served on an ec- as an economic advisor in the Trump administration, says it will be a big change for the country, which got out of the minerals game in recent decades, and it will bring challenges, including obtaining permits, for minerals development, developing the needed workforce, and building out processing capacity. The Biden administration hopes funding from the landmark Inflation Reduction Act and other sources will hope help overcome these obstacles. But the rush for renewables will also bring another big hurdle, environmental impacts. Already, as the search for EV materials ramps up, tribes, landowners, and communities find themselves wrestling with the not-so-green side of green energy. For a sense of things, consider cobalt. About 30 pounds of it go into each EV battery to boost performance and energy storage, which are key to luring customers away from dirtier gas cars. But today, still, 70% of cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo where an estimated 40,000 children as young as six years old work in dangerous mines. These mines also bring deforestation, fragmentation of existing healthy habitat, and high carbon emissions from mining and refinery processes that themselves rely heavily on fossil fuels to produce electricity and drive heavy mining machinery. Some sources say that the CO2 emissions from cobalt mining itself could double by the end of this decade. EV boosters are eager to put mileage between their products and human rights abuses, which fuel Republican and oil industry criticisms of battery-powered vehicle. And although efforts are underway to improve overseas practices, 
Another way to tackle the issue would be to mine cobalt in the United States, which would also increase domestic sources of EV materials. But today, the country has only one cobalt mine, and building others would likely raise environmental concerns. Lange says that's certainly the case in Alaska, where copper and cobalt rest beneath rolling tundra south of the Brooks Range. Accessing all of this copper and cobalt would require a 200-mile-long road to be built through traditional Alaska native lands, through caribou habitat, and through the gates of the Arctic National Park, with gravel quarries dug along the road every 10 miles. It's something state leaders support, but state and national environmental groups and several indigenous communities oppose. Permitting for this 200-mile-long road through sensitive habitat in order to extract copper and cobalt actually began during the Obama administration, and the permits were approved under Trump, but it's now under reconsideration by Biden. According to Lange, such regulatory sagas of back and forth breed uncertainty within the minerals industry that slows the investment needed in the minerals that we require for EV batteries. He offers up the Twin Metals Mine near Minnesota's Boundary Waters Wilderness as another example. There, in Minnesota, the target is nickel, another important EV metal that is mined in only one U.S. location. In a political tug-of-war, the nickel mine's long-held leases were denied renewal by Obama, reinstated under Trump, and then canceled again under Biden. In both cases, concerns over compliance with the Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act in both Minnesota and Alaska led to lawsuits and claims of rushed environmental analysis. Lange says that these bedrock environmental laws have improved air quality and human health conditions in the U.S., but at the same time, these laws and restrictions may also contribute to a lag in sustainable production of EV materials in the U.S., forcing us to have that production be pushed overseas with even less regulation. Lange says when we restrict access to natural resources, these international companies can choose to go elsewhere, often to countries with lax environmental and human rights laws. Well, the tension between environmental protection and renewables development is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. We were just talking about Alaska and Minnesota, well, let's talk about Nevada, where Adam Bronstein of Western Watersheds Project sees it in northern Nevada, where his group has joined a lawsuit against a proposed open-pit lithium mine in the Thacker Pass. That's an area of remote desert that's home to grouse, antelope, trout, and other sensitive species, including some species that are only found there. It also holds hundreds of Native American heritage sites, sites that remain important to tribes today. Lange says it's a very remote and undeveloped landscape where the stars are still bright and the air is quiet. But Bronstein says the West is quickly losing such landscapes to development, including large-scale solar projects and renewable energy-based mining. At Thacker Pass in Nevada, for instance, the lithium mine would entail a two-mile-long open pit with waste ore, acid dumps, and massive water usage. 
Like opponents of Alaska's 200-mile-long road, some also worry that once you build these long-access roads, it would open more access to additional claims and spreading impacts further inland. Mine proponents say that the Thacker Pass lithium mine in Nevada could support more than a million EVs annually and would add jobs and tax revenue. Bronstein of the Western Watersheds Project, who's monitoring the Thacker Pass mine and proposal in Nevada, questions the notion that ecologically valuable areas must be sacrificed for climate goals. Others agree, including a rising chorus who say solar and wind development in Nevada and California are eliminating vast areas of wildlife habitat, contributing to diversity loss worldwide. And then as a judge considers the Thacker Pass lawsuit in Nevada, nearly 2,000 miles away, let's head over to Coosa County, Alabama, where they're expressing similar concerns over plans to mine graphite, an EV mineral not currently produced in the United States. So again, we've talked a little bit about cobalt, which is only being mined in one location in the entire U.S. We talked about nickel, which is only being mined in one location in the U.S. Now we're talking about graphite, another EV mineral that is not currently produced anywhere in the United States. One lifelong resident of the area where they're looking at extracting graphite in Alabama, again, the first mine for graphite in the U.S. currently, they're a lifelong resident of the area and a board member of Coosa Riverkeeper, which protects, promotes, and restores the Coosa River. Christy Giorgio says it's going to be a mess and that graphite mining will level forests, disrupt hydrology, and leave chemical pollution that could last generations. Yet he also acknowledges the need for minerals to support renewable energy. We all want to stop climate change, he says. Still, DiGiorgio feels that state officials in Alabama unjustifiably fast-tracked the mine's permits, and he questions whether graphite demand will still be high by the time mining starts in 2028. But whereas Western Watersheds Project in Nevada is fighting the Thacker Pass mine for lithium, in Alabama, Coosa Waterkeeper, the nonprofit, appears settled into guarded acceptance and a commitment to trying to play a watchdog role over the mine opening. Well, then there is Idaho. Josh Johnson with the Idaho Conservation League is taking yet another approach. As an Australia-based mining company prepared to open the United States-only cobalt mine in Idaho's Salmon River Mountains, he helped secure $150,000 in annual funding from the mining company for local conservation work, money that can also be leveraged to help secure matching funds from state and federal grants. Two years in, the funding has helped restore overgrazed stream banks and supported the acquisition of vital fish habitat. And each year, their organization helps determine where the funding goes with input from tribes, agencies, and others. So again, we were talking about lithium in Nevada, nickel in Minnesota, graphite in Alabama, copper and cobalt in Alaska, and then this is cobalt in Idaho. And opposed to trying to stop the mine, this group decided to work with the mine to try and secure some concessions and say, if you're going to open, then we want $150,000 a year in funding for local conservation work that they then watch. Johnson there in the Idaho Conservation League says that the cobalt mine connects to their league's conservation goals, which include 
promoting renewable energy and adopting EVs. And while he recommends that environmental groups take a nuanced look at such mines, he stresses that his partnership doesn't compromise the Idaho Conservation League's watchdog role as mining gets underway. But it's also important to consider what happens after Idaho's cobalt would meet daylight. With no processing plants in the United States for cobalt, once mined and pulled out of the ground in the U.S., it has to be shipped to Brazil for processing. Then it gets shipped to China for manufacturing. And then eventually it gets shipped back to the United States, tucked inside a new EV battery from Idaho to Brazil to China and back to Idaho. Generous incentives for EVs in the Inflation Reduction Act aim to tighten that supply chain and ease reliance on strategic adversaries such as China to reach the U.S. climate goals. All of these incentives join funding from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the Defense Production Act, and other sources in a strategy that aligns with the International Energy Agency recommendations for diversifying global sources of minerals. Lange agrees that the funding will boost research, development, and processing capacity, but he questions whether it will actually move the needle on EV mineral production in the U.S. Inevitably, technology may help some of the issues surrounding these minerals that power EVs. Scientists worldwide are tinkering with EV batteries to improve efficiency, requiring less materials to accomplish the same goal, and to actually completely replace problematic metals like cobalt, nickel, and perhaps even getting rid of lithium. Other research highlights better ways to mine these minerals, including by salvaging EV materials that are currently discarded as waste at existing mines. This is happening in California's Mojave Desert at the Rio Tinto mine, which has long been producing minerals for soaps and cosmetics, but is now also pulling lithium out of its old tailings. Lange says that advances in recycling may also help. The International Energy Administration anticipates a surge in recyclable materials as first-generation EVs reach the end of their lifespan. And this alone, recycling old EV batteries, could meet 10% of global demand by 2040. It could help ease shortages, stabilize prices, diversify sources, and chip away at harmful mining practices, including new deep-sea mining in sensitive ocean ecosystems. Yet, as with everything else related to EVs, Lange says the United States lags behind China and other countries in our recycling research development and capacity. To Bronstein and others who are watching closely, placing solar at already developed areas like canals and parking lots and developing smarter cities that disincentivize driving will also remain important strategies for adopting clean energy in ways that minimize impacts on undisturbed wildlands. Cities and the federal government can also shape the strategic adoption of EVs by working to replace fleet and transit vehicles first. This recently happened in Antelope Valley, California, where the local transit authority became the first in the country to replace its fleet of diesel buses. Since its 87 new electric buses, vans, and coaches are cheaper to operate and maintain than dirtier diesel buses, the city is now using the savings to expand public transit and build a solar field to power the fleet. 
Similarly, last December, the U.S. Postal Service committed to buying at least 45,000 electric delivery trucks and exploring how to electrify its entire fleet. The approaches replace the EVs that log the most miles first, rather than relying on individual drivers to be the ones to adopt most EVs. Whatever path it takes, says Bronstein, the renewable energy future is coming. Scientists, activists, and other experts have spent decades advocating for this change, even as the danger of burning fossil fuels has increased. The future has finally started to arrive. But as Bronstein reminds us, making the transition to cleaner fuels still requires careful planning and restraint to protect our already beleaguered biodiversity and other natural resources. That's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. As always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or relisting. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 